welcome once again to a novel evening. As always, I'm Danny. You can find me over on Instagram at a novel evening podcast, and the same over on TikTok. Hello, at time of recording, we are at the end of January. Thank God. Like, I feel like Christmas gets me through the winter months. You know, when it's cozy and your house is full of fairy lights, and January is just depressing. Probably not for everybody, but for me, I'm over it. I want some sunshine. I want to get back to reading outside. But that aside, I am very excited for this week's guest. I recently devoured their novel, The Trials of Lila Dalton. If you love a good courtroom thriller with twists and turns and a little sprinkle of amnesia in there, this is the one for you. I am joined by LJ Shepard. I have so many questions about the story behind this novel, um, where the kind of inspiration came from. I know that uh, she has her own career previously as a barrister. So I'm very, very intrigued to see how that career as a human rights barrister has influenced this story. Um, so yeah, let's check it out. So a huge hello to Laura. Good evening. Good evening. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much. And how are you? Yes, I'm very well, thank you. Um, it's uh, the week of publication, so that's going to happen on Thursday. So it's a bit nerve wracking, but yeah. Which is incredible. Has it sunk in yet? Does it feel real? Not yet. I think if I was to see the book in a bookshop, that's probably when it's going to really feel, um, yeah, oh. that it's that it's here. And it's not long you're going to. You're going to see your book out in the world. I mean, it must just feel surreal. Yeah, yeah, really surreal. And people keep posting online, you know, that they're reading it. And um, that's just nerve wracking, but also really exciting. And how long has this book been in, kind of in process for you? When was this started? So I can actually date when I had the idea. Um, I know I had the idea on the 30th of November 2020. Um, and then I started writing it pretty much as a New Year's resolution in January 2021. So we're pretty much three years on from when I first started writing oh my goodness I mean it must feel really strange because you have this little kind of nugget of an idea you know three years ago and now suddenly it's here and do you feel kind of ready to let it out into the world are you ready to let it go and let it be out there yeah I am now I think when <laughs> it's, been, it, it <laughs> it's been incubating it's time to get out and yeah I'm excited so let's firstly for listeners let's kick things off Tell us about your book. Let's start right from the beginning. Tell us about the trials of Lila Dalton. What is it about? Okay, so the first scene opens with Lila coming round in a courtroom um, and she has no idea how she came to be there or who she is. But she very quickly realises that she is a barrister and her task is to defend the person who is in the dock. And she discovers that he has committed a very heinous crime or rather he's accused of committing a heinous crime and her job is to defend him. And so there's kind of a dual mystery. There's the mystery of who is she? Why is she there? Why doesn't she have any memories? And then there's the second mystery, which is, is her client guilty or not? Because the evidence looks pretty strong. Um, but there are some doubts, perhaps, that maybe there's more to this case than meets the eye. Mm, and I read it. I loved it. I, we are giving nothing away because I think this is a book you have to experience. You've got to dig into and discover that mystery but where did this idea come from for you so I previously had written other books and mm -hmm. um I had been rejected for those other books and so this really came I I, I really remember this day so vividly because I was crying on the day I'd just been realized that the pre the book I'd just written it wasn't going to get an agent it definitely wasn't going to get published um and I was sort of just really mourning that that you know I'd spent all this time on it weirdly the thing I was most irritated by was the fact I'd done loads of research for this book because it was a historical fiction book wow okay because I read quite widely I love lots of different types of books and I love my historical fiction and I was just thinking what a waste of time I spent all that time doing that research and I hated it and um that probably should have been a clue that historical fiction wasn't for me <laughs> <laughs> because it's when a <laughs> Whenever I hear people talk about, they're like, oh, I just love the, I just love the research. And I was just irritated. So I thought I really don't want to ever write something again where I feel that that's wasted time. Yeah. Um, and so I thought I want to write something more contemporary. And I also want to write something where I know the subject matter inside out. Yeah. 
and I'd been practicing as a barrister then for a few years mm-hmm. um and I was just at that stage transitioning out of of doing crime and I was doing crime I was doing jury trials I was representing people I was prosecuting and so I really knew a lot about that process and I thought well I that seems like a good idea I want to write something set in the legal world and then I don't have to do any research but I didn't want it to be a dry legal procedural um, yeah. thriller. I wanted there to be a sort of big hooky high concept idea because I love like Black Mirror um I love Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle and I love all of those sorts of movies like Shutter Island and Memento where they've just got this great high concept idea at their heart and so I thought well I'm going to mash those two things together and I know it was really weird like it just sort of dropped from the sky this idea um and then I thought well, what would the first scene be and I just had this again it just really came very vividly that there was this woman in a courtroom and she had no idea who she was or why she was there and the next bit sort of comes a little bit from personal experience because as I've said, I was a, a barrister at the time, but when I qualified as a barrister, I was in my mid twenties. Yeah, I very much still felt that I was essentially a child at that point <laughs> uh, because I'd been like studying for ages. I hadn't, yeah. I didn't earn any money for a long time. I was living at home, and then I pretty much went from that like almost extended childhood straight into being a barrister, and then. Mm. Um, I remember the very first time I stood up to address a jury uh, about a case and it wasn't the most serious of cases but it was it was really really serious to me and these 12 people were looking at me like come on then what's this case about because I was prosecuted to open the case and explain who the people were and what had happened and the judge literally just hands over to you goes right Miss Shepherd, stand up you know tell the jury what it's all about oh, and they were really listening to me and they were they were proper adults you know some of them were much <laughs> older than me and they were yep. expecting me to know what I was doing and I didn't lose my memories or anything but I definitely had a split second of what the hell am I doing here why are they listening to me why do they think they think that I know what I'm doing and a lot of that is obviously down to the fact that I was stood up in a wig and a gown and <laughs> there I was. Yeah. Um, There's expectation and, for you. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and it was fine. You know, everything went perfectly smoothly in that case. But um, I, I just really like clung on to that moment. And I thought, right, well, I'm going to go from there. But this time she's going to have no memories and then she's got to work everything else out. Yeah. And was it always a conscious decision? So I'm quite I'm very into true crime. And from various cases, I know that obviously being a defence barrister, being a defence lawyer is a very difficult task, especially if the person who's in the dock appears to be so blatantly guilty. Did you always know she was going to be a defence? You know, she was actually with the defence rather than the prosecution. And did that kind of shape the story differently? Initially, I thought, oh, maybe she should prosecute just because that fits better with the opening scene. Yeah. Um if you're the person stood up addressing the jury. Um, but I realised very quickly that uh, it was so much more exciting if she was defending mm. um, because um, I just think the stakes are higher. There's so much more sort of fun you can have when you're defending and or writing from the perspective of a defence barrister. Just for boring reasons, like you're the first person to do the cross-examination mm. and your job as a defence barrister is obviously just to sow the seeds of doubt. Whereas as a prosecutor, you are um, very much an officer of the court. Um, you know, there are all sorts of obligations on you as a prosecutor, you know, for disclosure and things like that. Whereas defence, you there's not you don't have to disclose anything. You could turn up having made no disclosure whatsoever. Um you know, you might have uh, the judge be a bit cross with your client for not doing it, but they can't impose any sanctions on you. Right. Um, and so for all of those reasons, you've just got so much more freedom uh, and, and things to play with. And I also thought if she was going to be doing some sort of investigation into the mystery, it made more sense for her to be a defence barrister. And again, I don't want to give too much away, but you have obviously a, a female central main character in a very male dominated environment even more so because of where the book is set kind of it's on this island she's very much tethered to the case and the people surrounding it's very male dominated 
And I'm just wondering how much of that kind of played into the real life experience of working within law and, and the male dominant, like how did that kind of influence that aspect of the story? So when I was practicing, it was way better. Yeah. I would still say there is a male dominance in crime um, and more solicitors in crime are male. Mm. Um, and um, there were attitudes in the roving room and I used to have arguments with people um, and uh, people used to say things and I used to say, you can't say that. Um, or, you know, I really appreciate it if you didn't behave like that in my workplace and that caused issues because then I was seen as a bit of a, a madam. But the women I worked with were fantastic. Um, I really can't speak highly enough of the camaraderie that existed between uh, me and the female barristers. And I would have cases where I would be like, what the hell do I do that this has happened? You know, there were always curveballs and you've always got things that you're worried about. I just knew that if I saw a female barrister, I could go to her and be like, help. She would drop what she was doing and just help me with my issue. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, there were times when barristers used to come from other circuits and this one particular chap came along and was really, really rude to me, really rude to me. And um, all of the barristers in the room just like turned their head. And um, these these are the female barristers kind of came to my aid and started to like defend me yeah. and, and all of that sort of stuff. So from that perspective, things are way better. But speaking to those women, what they had to deal with in the 90s was crazy. Um, you know, they they told me that you would walk into the roving room, it would be thick with smoke from people like on pipes and, and smoking cigars. Yep. Men would be undressing. Um, you, you know, these, these facilities weren't designed to have female barristers. They were designed to be male-only spaces. Um, and, yeah, and, and there was, you know, I've had female barristers tell me about times they were... Um, basically sexually assaulted you know and, and they didn't feel they could do anything about it which when you're working it within crime seems mad doesn't it when you think about it you're literally working in an environment where you're trying to prevent what is happening and I thought it was a really interesting decision to set it so that is my dog and um, to set it in the 90s I'm I'm was born in 1990 so it's not a time I obviously remember a great deal of um when you kind of said about research, was there a lot of research about kind of how things worked then? I don't know how old you are. So I'm going to make a bold something. You look very young. <laughs> but was there, a, was there research kind of into how things differed then? A little bit. I mean, some of it was just anecdotal stuff that people would tell me. Yeah. Um, the law was very slightly different, but um, that wasn't, I didn't want it to be overly legalistic anyway. So that wasn't too bad. Uh, yeah, the decision to set it in the 90s came from a number of things, one of which was um, I did do some research, but it was more like in what I'd call inspiration research. So I listened to lots of true crime podcasts and there were two particular cases in the 90s that I focused on that went to court. Uh, one was an American case, the Oklahoma City bombing, yep. and one was uh, in the UK, which was the um, London Nail bombings. Mm -hmm. They both took place in the 90s, and they're very similar in lots of in lots of ways. There are lots of sort of themes that, that cross over. Um, and so I thought, okay, well, clearly something was happening in the 90s for this sort of weird yeah. confluence of events. Um, it also just makes it easier from a perspective of mobile phones, the technology. Yes, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I think that's the one thing that is is quite difficult. Like the idea of having somebody cut off is almost alien now. Yeah. Even yeah. if you're in the you know in the Highlands of Scotland, like you seem to be able to get a mobile phone signal. So that was quite an interesting look at that because that's real isolation then, isn't it? Yeah, and and the nineties is funny because I was born in the early 90s as well um and I, I think that people have a weird nostalgia for a time they don't really remember so um yeah. my, my parents were born in the late 50s and they always talk about the 60s as, as, as this amazing time and I'm like you were you were 10 like what are you going on about you weren't going to see the Beatles you know yeah um, and I think <laughs> yeah I, I did have not that. see the Spice Girls <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't see Nirvana. Like Nirvana, you know, like they their album was released before I was born. But I've got this weird nostalgia for a time that I didn't actually really experience. Yeah, it's really funny, isn't it? Because I think I feel that way about like the nineties, and I do think for our age group, I feel like in some ways we got kind of the best of things like the internet. 
we kind of got things like that when they were so exciting and new and fresh and you were experiencing things for the first time. And, and I'm a parent now. So for me, I look at my kids who are so well-versed in technology. You know, we bought a new tally at the weekend and I was like, oh, I'll teach you how to use a remote. There was no need for that because they're bloop, bloop, they're on it. And I can remember getting like my first PC and having to learn how to like turn it on and use it. And I feel, I think for me, I feel a little sad. Our kids, I don't think will ever necessarily feel that same kind of wonder at the world developing. Yeah. yeah. And it's mad, isn't it? Because we did not realise we were on the precipice of the world changing like when I was when I was so excited to get the internet the things I wanted to do with it was so prosaic <laughs> I, I wanted to have I don't know like play neopets or whatever I was just about to say as you're saying I was like neopets and then you said it that's uh, that was for me and be able to go to MSN messenger and talk to people I'd spoken with if you just said to me you're going to talk to people like on the other side of the world or do what I'm doing now and be able to video call people on the internet I mean, just being able to send an, you know, an IM to somebody and have a fake, you know, blue rabbit on the internet was incredible. And if now people said, you know, AI and, and I can remember that film, um, oh, it had Hayley Joelsman, it was called AI and it was about robots yeah. and artificial, and that was so beyond us at the time. Yeah. That was such science fiction. And now we're on the cusp of it. Yeah. Which yeah. is mad. And we had no idea that we were at this vanguard at that time. Yeah. Um, and it makes me, you know, when I'm reading books like yours and looking at crime and looking at policing, it does make me wonder how that landscape will change with things like AI, with things like, you know, robotic intelligence, how that's going to change the shape of law. Because again, no spoilers, but the way you're examining how justice, quote unquote, takes place is very interesting, especially in a modern age, what that's going to start to look like. Yeah. Because it's yeah. quite old fashioned, the idea of kind of 12 people making this decision somehow, you know, has not changed for years, has it? No, exactly. And the things that we like we're dealing with now, we're, we're still struggling with just Facebook messaging, because before there was this whole thing that was going on that there was not being evidenced, which was probably conversation um, and or just chatting in the street or whatever. Now it's all recorded and it, it, it causes enormous problems for the police. They just don't have the resources to go through all of these messages. Um, and now we're dealing with a world where people can create images and we have we're going to have no ability to determine the real from the fake. At the moment, we sort of can because AI has, isn't that sophisticated at the moment. But the, even even recently, I've seen some images that are really convincing that AI have created. I just don't know how we're going to deal with that. Oh, I'm so sorry, Danny, I've lost you. All right, there we go. That was my fault. My mic just had a little moment. But I mean, there was a recent TV show, obviously. Um, oh my God, the name of it's just... The Holiday Granger. No, it was the one with uh, Michelle Keegan. It's the new Harlan Coburn. And it's all oh, like... Fool Me Once. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know, it shows the deep faking imagery. And I think I said to my husband, well, that's ridiculous. There's no way somebody could do that. I think I was very like, that's that's absurd. And then I think I Googled what it's feasible to do now. And to me, that's, and it means, you know, books like yourselves, which have got kind of that slightly Orwellian feel to it. Books, especially when you're setting in the 90s and things like that seem so far away, you realise that actually there is things, it's rapidly developing and the way things will change, it's, it's, it's so fast. Yeah. Yeah, it's scary. <laughs> it does. It's, and I think that's what your book kind of made me start thinking. You know, I always think there's this idea of like, oh, it was much easier. Things were much simpler in the 90s and things were easier back then. And, you know, the world wasn't so violent. And, but actually, it was just that information didn't travel as fast. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. you know, and I, I think 9 11 is probably a big part of that landscape changing that that was broadcast kind of same, simultaneously globally at the same time the internet was kind of in its infancy, but people were spreading news faster. So I think the interesting with yours is, although the news is there, I feel like, you know, you don't have the internet. You don't have kind of people being able to kind of be their own judge and jury on Facebook and other social media. So that was quite a nostalgia trip for me to think about where we've come to now. Yeah, and it's being filtered. And and there's a key character in the book who's a journalist. Um, and I wanted to focus on journalism because that was a big part of how we accessed news 
as I say, in the 90s. And um, it's a really, I think, a quite a famous clip that has done the rounds. And it's of Jeremy Paxman interviewing David Bowie. And David Bowie says that the Internet is is not going to be just a new m mode of, of uh, transport of information. He said it's an alien life form and we have no idea what's going to happen. And he talks about how... Um, how like the the interface between the user and the creator is going to be so in simpatico that it's that, that it's just not going to be any sort of you know lines drawn between consumer and producer um and he gave this interview in like like early 90s he it was so prescient like it's crazy wow. and jerry paxman has his look on his face i mean i know he always has that look on his face because <laughs> like what are you talking about you crazy man why are you talking about alien life forms and it is so prescient and um and I really really like saw that clip and I was like oh this is fantastic this is you know this is someone who really saw the future oh I'm gonna check I've never seen that so I'm gonna absolutely check that out because I think that is fascinating and look I loved the book and oh, I think you. it's gonna do so, so well but the next question I have to ask is what comes next for you if you can tell me anything yeah so I've written book two that has been sent to the publishers I'm currently waiting to hear back to hear what they say. So um, depending on whether they hate it or not, the next book, I can give you very, very small clues. So it's still going to be a sort of um, speculative legal thriller. So same genre. But this time, rather than focusing on um, a barrister, we're going to be focusing on the jury. Ooh, OK, OK. I do always find a jury fascinating. And I've always wanted to be called out for jury service. And I never have. I'm a bit scared of the idea. I think I want something like low key, like a traffic stop or something. But I've I actually got a jury summons. I'm doing my jury services in no April. Way. Yeah, I can't believe it. Um, it's going to be fantastic research. <laughs> Isn't it just, oh my goodness. Because there's a little, obviously I said, I love true crime. I love hearing about that. But there's a part of me, I think, I'm a little anxious the idea of getting something really big and juicy and mm. having that responsibility and... And I guess the thing of being a juror is you've got to stand by your conviction as well. Even if you're that one difficult juror who absolutely says, I do not believe either way, whatever you are yeah. that's opposing, you've really got to stand by your guns, I think. Yeah, I'm fascinated by juries. Obviously, for so long, all I wanted to do was convince them. Yeah. And um, I have a really vivid memory. One of the things that made me want to do this was I have a really vivid memory when I was very, very junior. I did something called a noting brief, which is basically you don't stand up in court, you don't wear a wig and gown, you just take a note of what's going on. And um, it was concerned um, historic sexual abuse, um, really emotive case. The, um, the survivors all had pretty severe mental health conditions. Yeah. It was really, really emotive. And there were loads and loads of counts on the indictment. And I was there when the, Jews were, the, the jury was returning their verdict. And there were some mixed verdicts. There were some guilties, there were some not guilties, and there were some where the jury were hung. And I remember sort of looking over at them and one woman was crying and I had no idea whether she was on the side of this man should have been convicted or whether this man should have been acquitted. But uh, the look on their faces, some of them wanted to murder each other on the jury. They hated each other oh. because they clearly, like those, that sort of mixed verdict tells you that there was some serious disagreement going on in there. And I just remember thinking, oh, I really wonder what's being said. You know, part of me was like, I really would like to be a fly on the wall in there because emotions are running high. Um, yeah. So I thought that must be an interesting thing to get into. That's a highly emotive case as well. That's, yeah. Because, you know, if you've got people who are parents, if you've got, you know, that's where the backgrounds of a juror will make a huge difference as well yeah. I think it's fascinating I, I mean I think all of it I think when I was sort of saying to you about like being in defense as well I, I can't imagine you know I, I look at very famous cases like Ted Bundy how are you a defense lawyer for Ted Bundy how can you go in there and try and sow doubt in someone's mind when it's you know the whole world is clamoring for someone to be guilty how do you even begin to think I've got to sow you know I've got to find the, the reasonable doubt here I think it's fascinating yeah, weirdly, that's the situation sometimes which is less stressful. Really? Um, 
yeah the most stressful cases I've ever had have been people who have been pretty much clean character um I, I have no previous conviction so whatever happens this is going to change their life yeah. um and who I think I don't know whether they did it and I don't always think oh they're definitely innocent but I just think oh there is doubt here and what if what if they're convicted and I did this case where this lady was convicted of fraud and it was a really nasty fraud um and the evidence was I mean, the judge said it was overwhelming, but it was very difficult because there was no evidence of her actually taking any money. There was evidence of her taking it out, but we there was no evidence of where the money went. Being spent, yeah. Where do you see the proof of it being used? Yeah, yeah. and um, yeah, I won't get into the details of it, but it was but it was just stressful because she was, you know, she was a lady in her midlife. She'd never been in trouble before. And when she was sentenced, she, you know, she came in through the front door of the court that day as a free woman. And then she went downstairs and she didn't come out again for several months. Um, you know, and, and I just, it was, I, I spoke to a lot of barristers at the time about, you know, how do you ever get over that when you see your client go downstairs and you know, they're not coming out again for a while. And they were like, I never get over it. I never get over that. That's that seeing that happen. Oh my goodness, Laura, look, I could talk to you. I could literally talk to you all night. No, I honestly, it absolutely fascinates me. And I could talk to you all night about your stories, but we're also here to talk about your novel, Evening. So sometimes I have a little inkling what someone's going to bring. I'm going to want, I have no idea who you're going to bring to this. Um, Obviously, no, we're similar age range here. Um, That still doesn't help me. (laughs) So I'm like- I think you're going to be surprised. Mine is weirdly romantic. Did not see that. Okay. Okay. So I was like, clearly I had no idea. Okay. So the first thing we always have to go with is where are we going to go? Because that's very important. Yeah. So we're going to Barcelona and we're going to a very specific Barcelona, which is um, Barcelona from the Cemetery of Forgotten Books series by Carlos Ruiz Safon. This is one of my favorite ever book series. And it spans along like a number of decades, but let's just say it's that Barcelona. Yes, I know what you mean. And it is supremely romantic. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. Okay. I'm down for this. You've sold me on location. And I know exactly, it's been a long time since I've read the books. But yeah, it's the way it's described is stunning. I think the, yeah. the setting itself is just beautiful. So uh, I'm, I'm down for this. Okay. What are we kind of doing in Barcelona? What, what would you kind of have in mind? Okay, so my favourite bit of any sort of night out is actually the preparation. <laughs> I love the bit where you're just with your like friends and you've got music on and there's makeup and da 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 da. So we're going to start off um, in Ciudad de la Park mm-hmm. and um, Fermín Romero de Torres, who is a character from the books, is going to give me a pep talk because in the first book, he is Daniel's confidant. He is the guy that's got all the wisdom, he's got all this life experience. And we're just going to go on a lovely walk and he's going to just really prep me, get me in the in the zone. We're going to go for lunch then at um, El Catragat, which is where um, Picasso and Gaudi and people like that used to hang out. Very nice. I'm going to leave Fermin behind for a second because there's another character in the books called Alicia. She's in the fourth book. Uh, and she's this like femme fatale character. She's got these great clothes, like her clothes are described as being like really great. So <laughs> we're going to go to her apartment because she's got this gorgeous apartment. Um, and she's basically going to help me get ready and look like this vampy femme fatale. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's a little wardrobe raid. Yeah. I, I mean, like she, she works for the regime, which is why she's got so much money. So they're kind of like, um, you know, <laughs> they're the spoils of fascism, but they are excellent. For one players. night, yeah, for one night only, we'd, we can move past that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's described in the book as being a stylized, exquisitely evil witch with red lips. And she has a very complicated relationship with the regime because her parents were murdered in the bombing of Barcelona um, or or killed in the bombing of Barcelona. And she basically becomes this orphan and she's taken on by like this spy master 
And by the time we're in that bit of the series as well, it's the 60s. So Franco has been in power for ages and no one ever thinks he's going to be out of power. So albeit she does work for the regime, she's got this very like complicated relationship with it. And she's no by no means a supporter of it. She just works basically as a police officer. So, yeah. And so I complicated, think, uh, but <laughs> yeah, for many people who have lived under the kind of the fascist regimes, I think that there is always a complicated you're in a very difficult position. So it's very hard until you're in that to judge somebody who's living well in that. Exactly, yeah. So for one night only, we're going to overlook, this is a magical world outside yeah. of, you know, real life. So we're, we're going to let her give you a vampy makeover. Then we're going to go to Gway Park. Yeah. Because there is a location in the second book, which is actually my favourite book, which is The Angels Game. And I actually went to Barcelona on holiday last year. And I went to Grey Park and I looked around and I was like, which house is this? And this is Andreas Corelli's house. Um, and I've actually got the book here with me. And there's a bit of a description of the, of the house. So the house was at the top of a steep slope with steps leading up to the front door. The large windows exhaled golden halos of light. As I climbed the stone steps, I thought I noticed the outline of a figure leaning on one of the balustrades on the second floor, as still as a spider waiting in its web. So it's a really gorgeous house, and I think I know which one it is. Um, I think it's the Gaudi Museum in Gway Park. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, it's really beautiful, cool house. <laughs> oh, I love that. Okay, so we're headed there. Yeah, so that's the location. And I've got... <laughs> This is so embarrassing. The first like category of people I want to invite are literary crushes. Okay. So I had my special episode a while ago. This is my <laughs> night. And it was not hype. Mine was just hot people in a castle. That was pretty much, if anyone was expecting highbrow, no, I just wanted good looking. I mean, there were some of them were very intelligent. That may be not why I invited them. So I'm not judging. And there is a rule, right, which is that... Um, like fictional people can be so bad you would never date them in real life and I think the sort of like classic of that genre is Spike from Buffy like never date him in real life but he is 100% a crush probably so would have dated him the... in real life in my <laughs> wilder days absolutely but I mean Spike and Buffy my word yeah so the first person is Lachlan Kite from Charles Cummings's Box 88 series he's a spy um and yeah, he just, I just had a bit of a crush on him when I read those books. I was just like, yeah, I would like to, you know, be treated badly, but. Um, yeah, I can't spy. You can't. While you go and do your spying. <laughs> uh, okay, okay. I mean, people love a bad boy. Yeah, yeah. What can we say? Okay, so he's come along. He's obviously going to be looking sharp, I guess. I'm, I've got the vampy makeover. We're all set. Mm, um. Okay. Potential competition for Lachlan is Jackson Brody from Kate Atkinson's Jackson Brody series. Okay. Um, you know, the fact that Jason Isaacs played him in the television adaptation may or may not have <laughs> an is impact that on the that. Information that's coming. Because I think if they've been playing a film, you can have the film, you know, incarnation if that's the look you want to go for. Yeah, basically. Yeah. You said crushes. So I feel like this is a few people vying for your attentions here. Well, you know, I just think maybe it's best to keep some options open. Yeah, um, we don't know how we're going to vibe. <laughs> this is a bit like literary speed dating, just a little bit of keeping those pools open. Plus, you know, yeah. they can go get drinks for you. They can hold your lipstick. Yeah. The last one I would say is the most sensible in that he is like a good boyfriend in in, in the book. And this is um, Sarah Lopp's The Book is Impossible. Um, and there's this lovely, um, yeah, there's this lovely sort of romance to the, in the middle of the book. I don't know whether you've ever read it. I haven't. I'm like listening, like, I'm already like, oh, he's the nice guy. Okay. He is the nice guy, but they've got such great banter in the book. So okay. um, it, the concept basically is that um, <clears throat> he sends an email. It is picked up by um the female character whose name I've completely forgotten embarrassingly um but it's picked up by her and they have this like email conversation and you really feel like the sparks flying and um you know back in the day I did used to do some online dating and you definitely know when you've got like a connection yeah. with somebody and she writes it so well you really believe this romance uh, and so they agree to meet up together but then 
the sort of twist is when they meet up they're both meeting at the same place but in different universes oh damn okay yeah okay he could be a contender you've got to keep your i feel like you've got a nice little pool there to choose from yeah. so you've got your you've got your crushes what's your other i was just saying genre of person yeah what's your other group okay star-crossed livers from fiction who okay. deserved to be together and i am changing that <laughs> some In of these Barcelona. so i might have to just like give the name of the book and the author and then if people know, they know, but I don't want to ruin it too much. Okay, okay, okay. But these are people that, like, I am upset with the author, but at the same time, they probably made me cry and it was a fantastic book. <laughs> okay. um, but here we go. So the first book is The Book of Lost and Found by Lucy Foley. So this is before she did her crime. She did historical fiction. And there were two people in this book that deserve to be together. <laughs> and in my Barcelona, they're going to be together. This is, this is like a game. Yeah, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to get people to tell me as well because some of these yeah. books I don't know. So I'm like, somebody hit me up with what's happening here. The next one, most people I think have read by now, and it's Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zavin. Yep. There are two people in there, and it's not the two main characters. Um, it's the, the other, the other one. Oh, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with. Yes, there was I... a choice made, wasn't there? Yeah, and um, I'm still upset about that. I mean, and, and that's the sign of a good book, right, is that yeah. you're upset about it. But You cared. Yeah, he was so great. Like, he was a great boyfriend. He went on such a journey. He was hot. Like, what What? What on earth, Gabrielle? What were you doing? I'm in agreement. Her? Yeah, that was, that was a bold choice. Yeah. Bad one. Uh, and then the final one is The Rose Code by Kate Quinn. This is a story that's set in Bletchley Park. It follows three women of three, one, one's middle class, one's upper class and one's working class. Uh, and it's the working class one. Oh. Starcross Lover. And yeah, it was tough. It was a tough read, but it's an amazing book. <laughs> oh, we all have those couples, don't we? When you read it in film or in book or whatever, that should have been together yeah Damn it. so I'm putting that right the third kind of like category of people is just like cool authors that I super want to meet um, I love how organized this is as well it's like, really organized this through yeah this is we've never had this level of organization I'm gonna <laughs> say this this is well thought out so obviously I want to meet the creator of the world that we're in Carlos Ruiz Safon yeah. um you know sadly he's no longer with us but um yeah like I would just love to poke inside his brain like what you know what was going on how did he come up with all of these amazing ideas see I I really really want to meet him yeah and I would imagine him being able to give you a little tour of where you are and beautiful and he'd be like yeah this is this and yeah he just he'd add to it definitely yeah the second person is Angela Carter okay. again no with us but she was badass now I, you know, as part of being an author, obviously, you do get some negative critique. Angela Carter knew how to meet that critique. <laughs> There's this amazing interview of her um, where she read from The Bloody Chamber, which are these, um, it's probably her most famous book. Um, and they're these like short stories where they're sort of like gothic fairy tales um, and they focus a lot on female sexuality. And she reads in this like BBC interview, she reads out a bit of her, one of her short stories. And obviously they're pretty screwed up because it's Angela Carter. And um, afterwards- The BBC as well, the BBC, I'm shocked. And afterwards, this guy who was interviewing her said, I don't really like fantasy. I like stories where, you know, someone goes into Sainsbury's and they purchase a pound of cod. And she just like, does not miss a beat. She goes, I'd like to know the Sainsbury's where you can buy cod, you fantasist. <laughs> oh my God. Also, oh, what a dullard. Good God. What a dullard. Like, he needs some fantasy in his life. But like, just... she just, like, it's she's so great. And, um, and she just was so irreverent and didn't care and really just, like, met any criticism. She was just like i'm me this is who i am like um and i just love that and i just think she would be such a cool guest like could you imagine the fun we would have and she would oh. upset people and it would be great <laughs> i love this i love this do you have anyone else in your cool authors section somebody who i think is super cool is sophie hannah 
Um, and I know not just because she's been very kind and lovely. I was going to say, I had um, kids on the back. <laughs> Um, but but because I just think she's really like ebullient and like if you look at her Instagram she's just so enthusiastic about everything and um, like she's just like I I went to this cool place today and it's never this you know sometimes when people on Instagram are a bit showy-offy it's never like that it's always like this is just great I just went to this cool place and how nice is it and I just really like that and um, again I just think she would just be really great fun She's going to bring that enthusiasm. That's what you need. And she's going to be posting about this probably on her Instagram being like, I'm in Barcelona. How cool is this? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I love this. Um, Someone else I would like to be there is Mick Heron, just because I love his Slow Horses series and um, he writes super funny. So therefore, you know, I'm assuming he would be really funny at the party as well. (laughs) Okay. It's a bold assumption though, because I always think that. I'm like, how do you know? You know, just because you write funny, you could have like the driest person, but you're probably right. And I think we're going to have a little bit of humor. Yeah. I actually think there'll be a lot of laughter going on in this night. I hope so. Yeah. So um, there are like loads of really cool authors, but those are the ones I've kind of whittled down just, you know, for the purposes of my shortlist. But yeah. Um, and is that, all of your, is that all of your groupings? I think so. Yeah. Like, we'll keep it there I mean you know more people may come along you know but that's going to be the sort of key the key players that's nice I do like that you've got your little nice things your little groups and I do think they'll all blend well together I think you've got a nice setting you know everyone had just relaxed the glass of you know Spanish wine and a bit of music playing beautiful and yeah. my question that I always ask and I think this is probably the hardest one is who is not welcome to come to your evening well we are in Franco Spain so um <laughs> again <laughs> none of none of those people thanks let's just keep it you know we're going to keep it calm but um in general i would say people who sort of um like in a literary sense like wind me up a bit um are people who are just obsessed with like rehashing the same things over and over again so i'm just sick of i'm sick of marvel like avengers movies like we i don't think we need another mean girls people may disagree but i just want people to create new stuff Maybe this is an age thing though as well because i saw mean girls and something in my core was so enraged at the idea of a i know it's a musical and you can tell me like a, a mean girls remake and i just like say what it's the idea of just remaking things when there is amazing i mean saltburn for instance i still don't know how i feel about it um i've thought about it a lot but it's different there's people mm-hmm. out there wanting to tell fresh new stories why are we remaking like ghostbusters for the fifth time i totally agree and also i think it's fine for things in the past to be like in the past so you know I always see these things where they're critiquing Love Actually and they are legitimate critiques Love Actually has problems sure but it was but it was 2001 but we were a bit ridiculous back then we had stupid ideas and you know maybe it's a cautionary tale but um I just think that yeah we need to like we can solve those problems by just creating new things yeah. rather than worrying about the, the problematic old things remaking just... the things that are problematic and make sure we lop out the problematic bits whereas you like you say you can tell and i'm a bit of a sucker for nostalgia you know i have children now and i know some of the old disney films are not great in their messaging but i still love them I know. because well, if you were born, you know, God, thank God, you know, my children's generation are far more clued up, are far more inclusive, far more educated. But the 90s, 80s, 70s, we had issues. <laughs> For sure. There were problems. But I think it's knowing it's okay that that's like you say, it's in the past. We have to move yeah. forward and not reflect. And yeah, I think Marvel... I used to love Marvel and it's it's gone too far. It's like a beast of its own making. They don't know when to stop. Yeah, and I um have a friend who makes films and I really wanted to see his film in my local cinema and I went on and there was there was nothing on there in my, in my cinema that was a, an independent or original film. They were all parts of franchises, every single one, apart from Cocaine Bear. Um, Which I and... loved. I'm sorry, <laughs> I loved Cocaine Bear. I did not see Cocaine Bear, but it was available. <laughs> I would highly recommend. It was far more comedic than one would expect. Okay. But yeah, everything else was just a franchise. Like it was a remake of a thing or a 
you know, it was a big Disney or a big Pixar or a big Marvel. Yeah. And, um, and they're all under the same banner now as well, which I didn't realize that basically, I mean, it's, Disney's almost become like the snake that eats its own tail. Like it's mm-hmm. just become such a huge, and I love Disney. I have a lot of, you know, warm memories of Disney VHSs, but it has almost just become so big. And it's sort of like, where do you end? They're just, ch- and it's the amount they churn out stuff as well. Yeah. Is mad. And like, I kind of miss the old days where I didn't have to watch six different TV series to understand one film. Oh yeah, totally. I, just, I, I miss being able to watch a film and not have to watch like 25 other things to understand where I'm at with that. And it, it's not for me. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I miss the Avengers, the OG Avengers, seven films. And that was that. Whereas now it's like, you have to watch Loki to understand this, to watch WandaVision. To watch, and I'm like, no, I don't have time. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely some sort of they've got a business model there, haven't they? Um, <laughs> they've hooked you in, but um, yeah, I love I how I'm not here knocking the massive conglomerate that is Disney. I'm like, they are not doing something right, and they're here with like sat on billions. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I would love. I'm actually a film student as well. That's what I'm studying at the moment. So I, I definitely feel you know, with a friend who makes film and you want to watch independent films, the space just isn't there. Yeah. And and you know my cinema that I that is close to me. It's not like a tiny cinema. It's decent. You know, it had yeah, same. Yeah, it had space for that film, in my opinion. Um, so yeah, that's, <laughs> that's our little. We're having our TED talk now about yeah. having space for because uh, you know we have we are quite lucky with our cinema. They do show varied films, but still like independent films. I would say less so. You're not looking mm-hmm. at real kind of indie films. Um, I think the last one we have is like. Winnie, Winnie, what is it? Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, or something, which should never have been made, in my opinion. That was, <laughs> but that was like, they were like, yeah, we'll chuck that in, but we can't have, you know, more artistic stuff. But I will say, where I live, we have at the city Exeter, they have a wonderful theatre called The Phoenix that are really interested in showing, you know, films that have made, you know, not just locally, but by people who are independent. So, yeah. They are out there. You just have to hunt them down. And look, before I take up any more of evening, because I feel like we could chat <laughs> all night long about cinema and crime. And one final question is, are you reading anything at the moment? Um, so I've just finished reading two great books. So I was in a bit of a reading slump before this. Um, and I'm so glad. I'm so <laughs> glad that I found these two books because they really got me out of it. And it always makes me think, was it the books? Was it me? I don't know, but these were fantastic. So the first one is The Treatment by Sarah Moorhead. This is speculative. It's it's crime, but it's more on the speculative side of things. And um, it's just great. Um, She's clearly done loads of really detailed research about behavioural science because it's about how we treat offenders and what we should do with them and what type of things work. And she's created this amazing tier system in the future, essentially, where the first tier is for people who they're offending because maybe they don't have enough money to feed their children or they're stealing. And so they fix that problem at what's called tier one. The next tier are people who, for example, their crimes um, come from, for example, and dealt with trauma, things like that. So then they they fix that at tier two. The upper two tiers are super dystopian, quite bad, you know, what goes on there. Um, And and it's just really fascinating. It's basically about our capacity to change or be changed by treatments um, and how we should deal with offenders and whether it's about rehabilitation or whether it should be about um, punishment. And so I don't feel like I've described it very well, but it is fantastic. And I've read it so quickly. Yeah, That's that's a question I always think about is what, and I'm conflicted, but some days I feel very differently and I feel very differently, say, depending on the crime. And is prison about rehabilitation? Is that ultimately the goal? In, In my opinion, do I feel like that's, or is it about punishment? And it's an interesting, it's a very interesting argument. I'm, I love the sound of that. That's going straight on my list. And I think as women as well, it's particularly pertinent for us because um, it is like so many crimes, you know, we're we're the victims of them. Um, And of course, we want to see the world burn. But then I come from a different position of actually, if we were to rehabilitate these people rather than focus on punishing them, maybe future women would be saved from their crimes. 
Um, it's really hard and lots of women's rights groups come out about this stuff and feel that there should be more punishments for domestic violence and, and sexual offences. And whilst obviously I completely understand, I've sat, I've sat in rooms with so many women who've been through this. I, I my, my personal goal is I always want to just avoid further crimes being committed. So, and, and prison is proven as it's not a good, it's not a good outcome. Yeah. So I'm really conflicted as well. And then again, on the other side of the coin is, I know for a lot of those women who came and gave evidence against these people, all they really needed was six months of him being in prison because then they could get away from it. Yeah. Um, so it's really hard. It's really complex. And she really gets into all of that. Oh, that. Um, the other one that you read. So this was The Drift by um, CJ Tudor. Oh, I'm so desperate to read this. Yeah, it is fantastic. So uh, she just is incapable of writing a bad book. Like, and this is, I would say, is her most accomplished. Like, I love her other books, don't get me wrong, but this is it's it's really good so um it it's basically three interlocking stories um it, again it's dystopian future i've just had a very dystopian moment this last week um uh, and they're three locked room mysteries and as you go along they sort of slowly sort of start to see that threads between them kind of merge and then when it's all sort of revealed at the end what you've been reading the final denouement is like it's so clever it's fantastic uh and her voice in it is I would say a bit different to how it's been previously it's okay. very sassy it's very like I mean her characters are a bit very sassy um and it's got this real kind of deadpan humor to it um Ooh. so yeah I could not recommend that enough I read it in two days Oh, you've so I've had it sat in my basket for so long and I'm like I will get it I will get it and you've sold me now yeah, sometimes with people like that, I kind of leave those books because I think, well, I know that's going to be good. So yeah. I don't worry about it. I know that's going to be good. Let me try and slog through these ones that I'm not so sure about. But actually, like, uh, I should have just read it ages ago. It was, it was so good. Oh, my goodness. Well, look, this has been, honestly, it's been so fascinating to chat to you. I've loved our conversation. I wish you all the best of the book. I don't think you need oh. it because I think it's fantastic and it's going to do so, so well. And Laura, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Oh, no, thank you. It's been really good fun. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of A Novel Evening. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed making it. Please remember to go over and rate, subscribe and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And check us out on Instagram at A Novel Evening Podcast and over on TikTok under the same name. And we'll see you next week. Bye bye.